So a friend of mine uh, who's a Methodist minister uh, told me a little bit about his own tradition and a service that they have once a year in most Methodist churches. So maybe you guessed it, maybe you didn't. I did not grow up Methodist. I didn't have any Methodist friends. And so when he told me this a few months ago, it kind of like blew my mind. And so in a gathering like this, a typical gathering in a Methodist church or a Methodist campus ministry, about once a year, they have a service where the focus or the theme uh, of the night is remembering your baptism. And so the whole service is kind of predicated around this idea that various people, both kind of staff, but also lay people or those that are attending, would stand up during the service and just share kind of what led them to be baptized and what did that mean for them in that moment? And then what has God done in their life since then? And I love that because anytime we can remember significant moments spiritually and we can recall them, it's almost like the meaningfulness of that moment is extended into today. And I've never been to one of those services, but I hope to go soon. But one of the things that I appreciate is that I'm a pretty forgetful person. I can have an incredible moment with God, spend time with a friend, go on a great date with my wife, and I'm a forgetful person. That's why I love the gratitude challenge at my church, or I engage in the practice of journaling. But I just love this idea that that set aside once a year in Methodist tradition, there's this callback to that moment. And if you've been baptized in water, even as I'm sharing that, you're kind of there mentally. You're thinking about what led you to take that step of faith and what was it like to get in and out of the water that day and what did that mean for you and what did it mean for those around you? Um, I love sharing stories about my family. A lot of you guys know my wife, Hannah, and my four-year-old, Jeremiah. And um, anytime I think about reminders, I automatically think about my son, primarily about three words that both bring relief to the soul and strike fear in every parent's heart, bedtime routine. It means that I'm, I'm so close to my show on Hulu, I'm so close to Netflix, but I have to get over this last hurdle of parenting for the day, bedtime routine. And if any of you guys are cursed or blessed enough to be parents later on in life, um, you'll realize that bedtime routine is an interesting negotiation. And I really feel like if I could boil it down, when I do bedtime routine with my son Jeremiah, it's really the, the art of reminding each other without trying to annoy each other. So usually my wife, Hannah, she does bedtime routine and I'm typically like the Uber driver of the family. I take Jeremiah to school and pick him up in the evenings. We're trying to have like equitable parenting, but we're not there yet. It's a whole other sermon for another day. But the other night when my wife was with a friend from work at a Bible study, um, I had to sub in, right? Bedtime routine. And maybe if you've babysat uh, for us before, um, one, sorry we can't pay you too much. Two, you'll know where I'm going with this story because... I always forget things during bedtime routine, but I always forget like the inverse of things that Jeremiah remembers. So for instance, I'm like, Jeremiah, did you remember to brush your teeth? And then you hear like scurrying in the bathroom. Jeremiah, did you remember to flush the toilet? And then he's always like, I did, dad. And I'm like, I didn't hear it. And he's like, but I did. I'm like, do it now, son. He's like, then I'll have to wash my hands again. I'm like, that's fine by me. Your hands are never clean enough. So it's this incredible portrait of spiritual warfare that happens between 8.15 and 8.35 uh, in my apartment on Wisconsin every week. But the thing that I forget the most that upsets Jeremiah is I forget his sweet dream candy. 
you're probably wondering, what is Sweet Dream Candy and how do I get some? So a few years ago, um, Jeremiah was really afraid to go to sleep. Like he would cry and scream and yell. It was like negotiating with the terrorists that always won. And so my wife came up with this incredibly creative idea that at the very end of the bedtime routine, right when he was trying to cling on to us, I mean, if we, could, if we did it his way, we'd be like sleeping in the same room all the time. He wants us to fall asleep. He wants to fall asleep next to us. And so my wife introduced this idea, Sweet Dream Candy. And the very end, we've read our three books. We've said our prayers um, we've talked about his day. We've reflected on the Bible story we read earlier. We start to tuck him in. We bring his stuffed animals. We make sure he has his sippy cup. That's the moment for the sweet dream candy. And it's interesting because he looks forward to that throughout the bedtime routine, and it makes kind of saying goodnight and goodbye a little easier. The thing that's problematic for me is that right now the sweet dream candy is candy corn, and I just have like a huge theological issue with giving my son something that tastes like waxy garbage, but just let it be what it is. Too honest, too honest. Okay, I don't know if it's common or not, but as I think about family, I think about those like family group messages that like I love the conversations, but the notifications are definitely on mute. Um, I think my wife's family chat, which I've been graciously grafted into, averages about 38 texts per day. So that's really fun. Um, my family or my family of origin, so me, my mom, my dad's not in it, I don't know why, but my brother and sister, and then Hannah's kind of grafted in. We're on WhatsApp uh, because my parents live overseas, and so I know, you didn't think I could get any cooler, I just did. And so in WhatsApp, my mom plays the role of being like the group leader, specifically when it comes to reminders about important things in our family. For instance, a few weeks ago, she put, hey, reminder, it's your Nana's birthday, here's her cell, here's her address, let's make sure we celebrate her well, right, guys? Question mark. Or she'll say, hey, your uncle, he was in the hospital, and I know he would appreciate a call. Here's how to reach him at home, and here's how to reach him at work. My favorite thing my mom does, and it's so precious, is she also like, gives us a reminder countdown about her own birthday. She's like, hey, just want to share this little countdown website I made, 59 and a half days till my birthday. And then she'll kind of have a story each and every day, uh, a memory of previous birthdays, which is just an invitation for us to exceed expectations. And I guess she can do that because she's in charge of the group. Um, but what I really love is that she phrases some of these things as reminders when I don't actually know when my grandmother's birthday is. I don't remember my uncle's phone number, even though she's given it to me 20 times. But she kind of plays this mediary between how I can serve my family and in what ways um, am I able to serve my family. And so you probably figured it out by now through those three short stories or maybe through the sermon graphic behind me that for the rest of the semester, we're going to be kind of tracking along this line of thinking as things I need to be reminded of often. And so you heard during announcements, German talk about the various speakers who are going to share. And we really hope that this is a series where you're invited alongside each person speaking to consider what are the things in our lives, and by extension, maybe your life, that you need to be reminded of often. It's so funny that one of the most common imperative phrases in all of Scripture is stand firm. 
Almost every single pastoral letter includes this idea and this, um, this invitation to stay rooted or to stay connected or to avoid drifting. And I think it's, it's in reference to our ability to be forgetful, in our ability to not remember, to not remember who we are and whose we are, to not remember who God says he is and what he said about us. Well, here's one of the things. I'll share three tonight like most good communicators. The first thing is this that I need to be reminded of often is that I still need the gospel. It's easy to slip into thinking that the gospel is just for people pre-conversion. But the story throughout the New Testament is very different. I need the gospel still. Here's what's happened in my life. In those moments when maybe I wouldn't say it, but I'm acting like I've graduated from the gospel and I've taken back control of my life instead of trusting Jesus as Lord of my life, the reality is that I fool myself into believing I'm bigger and better than I truly am. I still need the gospel because I am a sinner. I am broken. I make mistakes. I act in ways, in thought, in deed that are against the kingdom of God, that are rebellious towards his heart for me and his heart for others. I still need the gospel. I still need the gospel because I like leaning on my own understanding and I like doing things quickly, not leaning on the Lord's understanding or doing things with a group of people. I get asked all the time by wonderful church partners and pastors, friends of mine, friends of DC Chi Alpha, what is it that keeps students, particularly students in DC, what keeps them from becoming disciples that make disciples? And I think I've shared this before, but some churches are like, is it liberal politics? Is it politics? I feel like they all think it's politics. Um, and I think that I've come to this conclusion. The thing that keeps you and I from being disciples that make disciples is the reality that we can't be self-sufficient and Holy Spirit dependent at the same time. A friend of mine, a mentor, Brandy, um, she was on staff at a church when I was a pastoral intern in Georgia, and she has studied all throughout kind of the past hundred or so years revivals that have taken place in our country. And she has some very interesting observations that she shared with me one day that I want to pass along to you. She said this, note that many of America's greatest spiritual awakenings and revivals at the center of them weren't people that were great strategists or marketers or communicators. It wasn't people that were necessarily the smartest or the most financially equipped. But instead, it was people that relied on God and made desperation for God normal. And then she goes on to say something that, to me at least, appears scandalous when I first heard it. She says, the smarter you are, the more difficult it is to let go of control and to live in tune with the Spirit consistently. She said, look 
at the revivals that we see. Look at churches and ministries making an impact. It isn't always the most educated. It isn't always the most connected. It's usually people of prayer that have found that they have to be desperate for God. I love what Candace said. She was a life group leader in Chi Alpha, and she put it this way uh, one day when we were having coffee at the DAV, and she said it, and I'll never forget it. She says, it's the hungry kids in the kingdom that get fed. And she's talking about this countercultural, counterintuitive honesty that we should have not just before God, but in our own heart, that we need to remain desperate if we want to see God move in our lives. Maybe you can't identify what your struggle is or where your brokenness is manifesting itself. But that's why we believe in community. If you're here and you say, hey, I don't really feel like I need the gospel or there's not an area where I want God to bring healing or breakthrough, the reality is, and I'll say it as gently as I can, that either you're lying to us or you're lying to yourself. That none of us graduate beyond our brokenness on this side of eternity. But the good news of the gospel is that God loves us even when we're broken and he works to put us together again and again and again and again. It's interesting being in a university context like D.C. with students from great schools like American and Georgetown. I find at the office at American, I feel like staff are always talking about new methods of research and scholarship and, and new ways to push academics and to explore different areas of study. But, but I've come to realize that I, I probably shouldn't apply that same lens of searching for something new, searching for something novel to my faith story. I should, be, I should be grateful for the simple ways I've been offered to follow Jesus. And we see that in his own life and death, don't we? We see that even after 30 years of obscurity, he's thrust into the public sphere. He's performing miracles. He's meeting needs. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He's mentoring disciples. And yet he still takes time to be with the Father. Even towards the end of his three years of public ministry, he doesn't become more uh, self-assured. He becomes more father-dependent. He says, I don't do anything out, outside of what the Father has told me. Jesus consistently leaned into a reliance on God. And if Jesus had to do that, I most certainly have to do that as well. The second thing I need to be reminded of often is that there are lost people all around me. Now, I know this sermon kind of seemingly took a dive from somewhat funny to very weighty, but stick with me on this. I don't know what it is, but we so easily lose sight of the reality of lostness. That there are people in my own life that I love and care about, colleagues at Georgetown, or American family members in my case, Friends that don't yet follow Jesus. And I've come to realize that if that doesn't stir something up in me, maybe I'm not responding the way Jesus would want me to. It's really interesting. In one place in the New Testament, in the Gospels, we see Jesus was about to take some time away from the crowds and go on one of his 
retreats, and he was probably going to bring his disciples along with him. And the scripture says that he looked at the people, and he had compassion on them, and then he chose to minister to them. Jesus modeled for us, living in that uncomfortable tension of there are people who deserve to be loved, and there's a loving Father, and it's our role to stand in between the two in hopes that more people might know Jesus. I once heard a missionary talk. Um, This is a man who has been in missions for all of his life. He's been tortured for his faith. He's served in conflict zones, in developing countries, in the Middle East. He's planted churches, and he's pursued people individually and sharing the gospel in evangelism. And he said something five years ago that I don't think I'm ever going to forget. He said this. He said, if we provide access to education for those that are illiterate, if we provide platforms of equality for those that are oppressed, if we bring clean water and nutritious food to those that are hungry, but we don't share with them the good news of the kingdom, the truth about Jesus, we've only made them more comfortable in this life while remaining satisfied with their future in eternity apart from God. What's interesting is that he's not devaluing compassion. He's not devaluing justice. But he is saying that the greatest compassion and the greatest justice is when people meet God. It's not a popular thing to say, but as we read scriptures, it's the only thing that we can be sure of. That yes, we're to meet needs, we're to step in, we're to serve those that are impoverished. But if we do so without a thought of someone's eternity, we're actually doing them a disservice. I think we do that sometimes or we fall into that temptation or at least I'm prone to that because it's easier to meet physical needs of people than it is to discern and meet spiritual needs. It's easier to see people lack in the physical and then provide for them It's easier to do that than sensing the spirit and where someone might be spiritually deficient and then loving and serving and speaking life over them in that particular way. The third thing that I need to be reminded of often is this, following Jesus is costly. Here's what happens if I don't communicate that as a campus minister. If I only talk about the good side of the good news without discussing the cost of following Jesus, I've unfortunately led people into moments of disillusionment and discouragement that they didn't need to travel in and that they didn't deserve. If I don't keep that at the forefront of my mind, I will end up serving a Jesus that looks like me, thinks like me, and votes like me, and not actually serving the true King of Kings. John Mark Comer says it like this. He says, everybody wants to live within the kingdom, but nobody wants to have a king in Jesus. That the postmodern cry for justice and compassion wants to live within the kingdom as described in scripture, but without having to surrender to the king himself. In my own life and story, when I forget that following Jesus is costly, I begin to adopt values from the culture around me And then allow myself to be led by those values instead of being led by the Spirit and by Jesus. So for me, I can prioritize safety and comfort 
and convenience when I forget that following Jesus is costly and that the gospel doesn't necessarily lead me to prioritize safety, comfort, or convenience. It's interesting. Jesus was radically transparent about the difficulty of following him. In Matthew 16, 24, he says this, if anyone would come after me, let me deny himself, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. My missionary friend who I shared about just a few moments ago reflects on this passage and he says, Jesus took up his cross and his cross only. Will we take up our cross? It's interesting that yes, Jesus takes the crossword journey for us, but he also does it as a way to model for us what it means to do the will of the Father. The cross doesn't disappear from my life just because Jesus took his cross, but instead I'm given an example how to navigate, how to engage with the cross that I am called to bear. Francois Fenelon says it like this, that if we hesitate to wrap our arms around the cross that Jesus has given us to carry, it will hurt twice as much. That if we push back on the sacrifice and the cost of following Jesus in the long run, it will be more painful. It's interesting, one time Jesus is, is speaking, talking about the good news of the kingdom. Seems like the, the place is pretty packed. And someone gets his attention and says, Hey, I, you're like, your mom and brother are here. They want to see you. They want some VIP seats for the next miracle. I don't know, something like that. And then Jesus does something that seems out of place, at least to kind of our modern picture of Jesus as kind of some nice guy out there floating to help us accomplish our dreams. He says, what are you talking about? My mother is right here. My brother is right here, and he's talking about the disciples who have followed him, who have walked in obedience with him, and who are his new family. Jesus isn't calling us to live a life of isolation. He's just calling us to redefine who our family is. He's not calling us to be alone, but he's calling us to be together with different people, perhaps, than we once expected or that we once assumed. I remember in college, I was taking 19 uh, credit hours. I was a leader in Chi Alpha. I had a part-time job or two. Uh, I was involved in my local church, and I remember asking. Uh, there was one semester where I was just asking. I was asking my friends, my Chi Alpha director, my staff mentor. Um, I was, like, Googling, you know, how do I balance it all? I feel like for one semester, the word balance was just, like, my huge kind of theme that I was trying to figure out. How do I navigate not just all my passions and, and responsibilities, but how do I navigate the things, the desires and dreams that I felt like might be from the Lord? How do I navigate the difficult things, but how do I also navigate the good things and the many opportunities I had to live into them? And I remember someone saying something that's really stuck with me, and it's this, and it impacted me so profoundly uh, as a college student. Following Jesus well does not lead to a balanced life. That if we're truly following Jesus, the result is not a balanced life. Here's how we know that. Jesus, in his ministry, from the outside, wasn't very balanced. 
Jesus as he modeled and then equipped and sent out the disciples often with nothing but the things that they were carrying and told them to find people of peace in different communities and proclaim the gospel. It was not a balanced approach to life or ministry. But instead, the story of Scripture and people responding to God is one of habits and practices, rhythms and routines, feasting and fasting that help us to live in the world but not be of the world. I realized that for almost the whole semester, I was asking the wrong question. The question wasn't, the question shouldn't have been, how do I balance it all? The question should have been, how do I prioritize the kingdom and then let God define who I truly am? I didn't want to ask that question in college because I was afraid of who God would make me into. I didn't want to come openly to an altar or to a staff member and really begin to talk about things because I didn't trust in the goodness of God. I would never say that, but I was acting like that. A lot of times when I talk to students, especially over the years, who are also trying to figure out balance or priorities or rhythms and rest, I think that the subtext of all that is similar to what the subtext of my life was in college and then even later into my first few years of ministry. I would, again, I wouldn't have communicated it, but this was kind of the operating thought driving my questions. How do I do all the things God wants me to do and still do the things that I want to do? But the more I read the Gospels, the less I see them leading to that question. The less I see myself as the center of the story. I don't even know if my Chi Alpha directors know this, so hopefully they're not listening. Um, but man, I remember I was in Chi Alpha. Community was messy. That's easy and fun to say. It sucks when it's happening to you. Community was messy. I didn't know people were imperfect and broken in my Chi Alpha. Um, there was 20 awkward people in Chi Alpha, and then me, a very prideful person, so there's 21 of us trying to figure out life together. And... I remember I was like, I'm, I'm done with Chi Alpha. It's, it's not giving me what I want. I'm not seeing what I want to see. And a lot of that was like, for me, honestly, it, it, it wasn't just like, it didn't feel selfish. It was like, I felt like that there was more and we just weren't getting at it. And I remember I even set up an appointment with another minister from another campus ministry. Uh, his name is Ben. And Ben was leading a campus ministry at the University of Alabama. About 1,000 people would gather weekly for worship. So a little bit bigger than the 21 people in Chi Alpha. And I remember, I don't know how I got on Ben's calendar, but I did. And we were sitting on the quad in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And I began to share my heart for the campus, what I felt like the Lord was calling, how I wanted to reach my friends and, and see people in my dorm like come to faith and experience radical transformation. And I, this is the first time and the last time I'd ever talked to Ben. Um, but I remember he leaned over so lovingly and said, Blaine, I think he called me Blake. That's how we didn't know each other. He's like, Blake, let me speak into your life. I was like, my name's Blaine, but whatever. Um, he said, maybe God's not calling you to join something that looks awesome and feels successful. Maybe he's asking you to stay rooted and make it better for the next generation of students. 
And I was like, easy for you to say, Ben, you got a thousand at weekly worship, but whatever. But as I thought through that advice that he gave me, and as I began to painfully apply it to my life, even when I didn't want to, the entire trajectory of my story would be different had I not listened to him. Had I not stuck it out when I didn't see it working, when I didn't feel like there was any redemption in sight. I'm so thankful that Ben was a mature enough leader to kind of put the door in front of me saying like, hey, even if you leave, you can't come here. I was kind of like, don't you know I'm awesome? Like, I would be great for you. And he was like, why don't you just be rooted in yourself and be obedient? It wasn't a message that I wanted to hear, but it was a message that absolutely changed my life and story. No, our Chi Alpha didn't grow from 21 people to 1,000 people. That's how it would work like in a Hallmark holiday movie. Those are things that I love. Um, but what I did get to see over the next few years in Chi Alpha is friends of mine being baptized on campus, the pools that were connected to their dorms. Just let that sink in for a moment. They had dorms with pools. Anyways, got to see my friends baptized. Got to see three of my friends go into missions long-term all around the world. I, I had the privilege to learn painful lessons of leadership with a smaller crowd instead of with a big audience. Ben Arment says that the gift of obscurity is that we get to learn by making mistakes without a thousand eyes watching. That at times when we wish we were more known, more appreciated, more affirmed, that we had a bigger platform and more opportunities, that maybe God is giving us a gracious path to growth. And perhaps this is the journey that he would have us on. I was uh, reading a devotional several years ago. Um, it, it was like for husbands on how to love and care for and honor and serve and submit to your wife and mutuality. Um, so pretty solid devotional. And it was interesting because the author said this. He said, many men would give their lives in a moment for the one that they love. But few would die to self daily to love selflessly. Many people would volunteer for an opportunity to give their life and to trade it. But few men would rise to the challenge of consistent and faithful love each and every day. So I like the Enneagram. I am trying to be a healthy two-wing one. If you don't know what the Enneagram is, your life sucks. No, I'm just kidding. It's just a helpful personality tool that describes our motivations. And so a, a two-wing one is someone who um, identify with that. It's like someone who's trying to like help everybody even if they don't want it and is trying to like make things work a little bit better to reform things. And so I'm mostly, I'm mostly like unhealthy as a two-wing one, but I dabble in health at times. Um, that's just my own testimony. But I was reading the other day about how other people react to twos, how other people see twos, um, and some of the conflicts that can come up at work and at home. And it was like twos love big gestures People that don't like big gestures think that they're disingenuous and fake and hate them. I was like, whoa, this describes most of my friendships. Why didn't I read this earlier? I love big gestures. I love expressing affirmation, giving gifts. I like getting gifts too. Christmas is coming up. Check out my Amazon wish list. But, um, but here, here's something that my friend Jeremy told me. He said, 
Anyone can make noise for Jesus in a moment. But Jesus is looking for faithful, passionate devotion over the long haul. So for me, as a two-ing one, yeah, I like those big moments. But in the life of Jesus, I see him loving his friends and those he's discipling in a million mundane moments, in small interactions, in the way he listens, in the way he talks. Yeah, there's those big moments in the life of Jesus. I'm not saying he's a two-ing one, but let's talk after service. Um, he has those miracle moments, those crowd moments, but the greatest moments in the ministry of Jesus happen in small circles and in one-to-one -one conversations. I mean, just think about it. We use the term as Christians, born again. That term came out of one conversation Jesus had one time in the middle of the night with one guy named Nicodemus, and it's totally shaped how we talk about our faith. So as I look at Jesus, not just as the object of my worship, but as a model to be followed, I am called into consistency. Romans 12.1 puts it like this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view or in light of God's mercy, offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I just still can't get over this concept of a living sacrifice especially for people in first century Palestine who have a history of a Jewish framework who are imagining animals on an altar, this person is probably a little bit radical to the first listeners who's saying, no, no, the animals aren't the sacrifice anymore. You're the sacrifice. And then you should just stay alive in repeated death as the sacrifice. Like no one's signing up for that retreat. No one's buying that t-shirt. Like, yes, I would like to be a living sacrifice. Please tie me down to the altar. Thank you very much. No, but he's giving us this picture of what it means to die to self and find new life in Christ. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30 says this, and it's Jesus speaking. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When my life doesn't look like that scripture, it's usually because a few things have happened. The first is this, is that I take on more than God has asked me to take on. I carry a burden that is too big for my shoulders, that is beyond the scope of my current relationship with Jesus. I remember, I remember, um, I remember when I first started like spending a lot of time on social media or reading news online, like I was just overwhelmed with need. Overwhelmed at the number of causes I could support, the number of ways that I could volunteer, the charities that I could give to. And this passage reminds me that I am to be in step with Jesus. And yes, I'm to take up my cross, but I also find Jesus on the path carrying the cross. I love how it says that he's gentle and humble in heart. A lot of times as a two-wing one, I want to help people, and it's not because I'm gentle and humble in heart. It's because I am proud and I think I'm right, and I just want other people to recognize that and kind of benefit themselves too a little bit. Jesus is saying, learn from me. Look at me. I will give you the rest that you are seeking. 
Hey, I'm about three-fourths of the way done, and I wanted to pause right here for question and response. We're bringing that back during this series. So my good friend Trinity is going to have some questions for us, or for me, not really for us, I guess. Okay. So the first one is, you said that we are being welcomed to love in tune with the voice of God. How can I do that while I'm surrounded by the noise of college life? Yeah. I feel like a broken record, but it's the spiritual disciplines. Dallas Willard talks about them as the things that we can do so that God can do only the things he can. So I think silence and solitude, extravagant abiding time with Jesus. I think that if you and I find it difficult to spend 45 minutes with Jesus while in college, we'll never spend more than 30 minutes with Jesus when we have two kids, three cars, and a mortgage. I think now it's extremely sacrificial to be with Jesus, but it's always worth it. I found that in about half of the seasons of my life that I would characterize as wilderness moments, they were moments of self-exile. I wasn't choosing to receive from God. I wasn't willing to engage in the practices that are costly, specifically fasting and waking up early to spend time with him. It's interesting that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus like, is upset because the disciples, his friends, those he's been mentoring, they've been with him through those miracle moments, and they fall asleep in his moment of need in the garden. And I always read that story like, how could you fall asleep now? Like You're like three years into your apprenticeship with Jesus. Like first week on the job, that's fine. Three years in, And every time I become critical of characters in a story, the Holy Spirit reminds me, how many times have you chosen sleep over being with me? How many times have you chosen something that will bring temporary rest instead of engaging in long, eternal rest? That's just my story. Next question. Um, What should you do if you feel like God is calling you away from what everyone else thinks he's calling you to? Well, I think you've got to enter the conversation with the willingness to be wrong. I find whenever I do conflict management between roommates or co-leaders of life groups, the first question I want to ask is, are you willing to be wrong? Once, once we let go of the possibility of being wrong, we'll view everything in support of what we already want to do. So my first response would be, are you willing to be wrong? My second thing is this is that sometimes there are people around you that may not know what the right next step is for you. But I do think, in my own story, if I'm unwilling to submit my God ideas, my God dreams to those around me, to mentors that serve me, to people that serve alongside me, it's usually because I'm not fully sure it's from God my own self, like if I'm not willing to put it before friends, to put it before community, it's because I'm not necessarily as sure of it as I'd want to be. And so I think I would, I would say find a few relationships where you give people the permission to pray with you, to walk with you, and to challenge you. But what I love about Chi Alpha is when it's working at its best, there are people that will love you well even when they disagree with you. There are people that will be committed to you regardless of the decisions you make. And then I guess I'd ask this last question if this person kind of came into my office or wanted to grab coffee. I think I would say, 
does this new decision or new direction produce the reality of your values? In other words, is it in line with God's kingdom? Is it in line with the call to make disciples? Is it in line with what God has previously told you? And if so, and if you're willing to put it before others, then I think, yeah, sometimes we do have to do things that seem absolutely crazy to those around us in pursuit of following Jesus. I remember in the middle of the recession, I was working at a small, in a small town, a rural uh, community in Georgia during the recession, and I remember going to my lead pastor who had mentored me for 10 years, 10 years of one-on-ones, 10 years of meals together, 10 years of conferences. He had spent his life growing me, and I remember taking him to a restaurant and saying, hey, thank you for the internships, Thank you for the job. Thank you for the vision you've offered me. Thank you for the financial security you've given me and my wife. But I think God is calling me to be a missionary with Chi Alpha. (laughs) As he and I later reflected on that conversation, um, it wasn't something that he thought was my future. It wasn't where he saw me going. It didn't seem to make sense. Who would leave a church salary to go support raise in the middle of a recession? Well, I think by the grace of God, I heard God speak. I was willing to process it with community. But ultimately, I had to decide that community is not my Lord and Savior, but Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And sometimes he does call us to peculiar places in strange times. You may have one more question for me, Trinity, and the worship team can come up if uh, that's cool. What do you do? I guess not you, Trinity. Don't, like, walk up and ask the question. That would be weird. Um, what do you do? Trinity, you, no, don't do it. <laughs> Just stay in your seat. Um, if you can't seem to hear God, or rather you can't tell the difference between his voice and your own ambitions. Mm. I love the honest question. There's so much in there. Yeah, I think that my question, if if that person and I were having coffee at Midnight Mug, would be this. What do you sense the Lord is speaking to you in your devotional life? How are you hearing God invest in you through the teachings you've heard at Chi Alpha and at your local church? But then I would say that, man, if you can just sit in that tension in prayer God, I don't know if this is me. I don't know if this is you. I don't know if this is humbly, humble, godly ambition or if this is ambition built on self and pride. But then asking God what David asked, God, create in me a clean heart. I found that if the decision before me is difficult, will require faith, will serve others as in line with the gospel, even if I'm not sure, I should probably take that step. I don't know if there's ever been a spot in my own story where I felt like 100% sure of the next decision. I feel like God and I hang out around 70% sure. But I ask that question, like, is this going to be good for me long term? Is this going to be good for those that don't yet know God? Is this in line with God's heart for the nations? And then also, is it going to be difficult? So what I'm really getting at is is this idea that there's some things that God asks us to do 
that seem outside of our gifting, outside of our comfort, outside of what we would choose for ourselves. And in my own life and testimony, it's usually those things that God is calling me to. Things that will mature me, things that will stretch me, and things that will grow me. And the last thing I would tell that person if they happen to listen to me for 20 minutes like they just did, would be this. What is the last thing God spoke to you and are you being faithful to that? Have you completed that? Have you seen a release from that? Has there been a fulfillment or a finishing to that? And I hope that those questions um, would help guide some reflection for that individual. A friend of mine named Matt was in town, and when I say friend, I mean he's like my boss's boss in Chi Alpha, but okay, he's my friend. And he was hanging out with the staff at my apartment, and I was reflecting on the first time I walked into his office five years ago. He was the director of Chi Alpha at Fairmont State in West Virginia. And I walked into his office at Trinity Church, and across from his desk was, was bigger than like three whiteboards. It was this like piece of glass that was on his wall and there was lots of scribbles and expo markers. And, and I just had to ask him like, what is this? And he said, that's my dream board. And I was like, wow, very Pinterest of you in West Virginia. But he said, no, that's the things that I'm dreaming and praying for with the staff for our community and other communities like ours. And I remember seeing on there, he had things such as, hey, take this many students on this many international trips. But the thing that caught my eye the most was in the top right corner, and it said, send out a team to pioneer or start a new Chi Alpha on a campus that's never had one. So every day he walked in and he saw that. Then a few semesters ago, he sent out some of his very best staff to start a Chi Alpha at a university in Maryland that's never had one before. And it's interesting, now that I get to meet those students from that Chi Alpha who are on the other side of that dream board, who don't even realize that they're walking as the answer to prayers that have been prayed by people they probably haven't met yet. I share that story because sometimes God calls us to faithfulness and we may not immediately see the fruit or the outcome. Hebrews 10 through 13 gives us a portrait of people who have been faithful and did not yet see, but they stayed the course. On days when I want to give up, on days when I imagine having another job or another vocation, I just think how many people quit right before the breakthrough? How many people give up just a little bit too early? How many of us allow our impatience to drive the conversation about our faithfulness? The Christian life is simply the response to the good news of the gospel, centering our lives around someone other than ourselves, Jesus. And it sounds nice, it sounds appealing, it sounds virtuous, but it is hard, difficult work. I mean, Luke describes and acts a community that meets together every day, that shares fellowship, that enjoys meals, that gives generously to anyone in need. And you're like, wow, why can't our community look like that? And then you read the rest of the New Testament, and it's primarily letters addressing the messiness of community. In Corinth, they're getting drunk off the communion wine. How they did that, I do not know. Other early churches were having difficulty 
and people were seeking out new and novel ideas and not being satisfied with the simplicity of the cross. Other books in the New Testament were written to over-communicate the idea of grace and remind people that following the law doesn't get us love from God, but it's our love for God that helps us walk in line with the law. As we think through our personal response tonight, collectively, I want us to, to think through, are we willing to be people that remember that we need the gospel to remember that others around us are lost and need the gospel? And are we willing to live in the tension that following Jesus is costly? Jim Collins in his business book, Good to Great, he says, what keeps people and organizations from greatness isn't bad things, but good things. There are many good opportunities that each of you could pursue in a hundred different ways. But I would argue that the difficult path of following Jesus and being a disciple that makes disciples is a way for your life and my life to matter beyond this moment. To matter beyond this year and to make a difference in the lives of people we may never meet. Why don't you stand with me as we pray? God, I confess that this week you've reminded me that I would rather search out something new and novel than be faithful to the small things you've given me. That my attention can be so easily drawn to the next thing and I miss out on being faithful to this current thing. But God, I thank you that it's your kindness and gentleness that leads to repentance, and in you, we can come broken and find ourselves being healed, not by our own hands or our own doing, but by you. And I pray over the next few moments as we sing, as we come to the altar, as we pray with a friend, God, would you help us individually remember the gospel and with the help of your Holy Spirit apply it in this moment and in moments to come let's worship together